Micro Solvers, how are you guys doing? Welcome back to another episode of the Good Grow Great Podcast, the Great Lengths segment. I am so thrilled to have you here. I hope that you're having a good week and that you're just kind of welcoming the weekend as you tune into uh, this episode. Today, I have someone real special. He is originally from England, Phil Brown. And Phil joined the High Five Adventure Org team, High Five Adventure org team, after a seven-year run in the outdoor and adventure space. And he brings high energy and real devotion to the adventure field and has presented at multiple, multiple conferences all over the world. And he's also one of the co-authors of the book, Tinker, Building Purposeful Experiences from Classic Adventure Activities. And he is also the producer and host of Vertical Playpen Podcast, which is all about adventure and experiential education, which is something that's quite different, right? All of us here on the podcast, when we're looking at learning, we want to find creative and new ways to really up-level your, your momentum. And some small ways that he's helped many leaders and different groups, including Boston Bruins and some major league uh, teams make big, massive leaps are by helping them discover, number one, what you really should be doing when you make a mistake. And also, number two, the wrong and right ways to approach difficult conversations. And thirdly, how to become the leader you wish you had. So much goodness. This is going to be a great, great episode. Don't forget to hit follow and subscribe. Grow Solvers, let's dive in. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right. I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited to have you on because you do something that I think is really cool. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but it's uh, your your business. The business that you represent here is High Five Adventure. And so before we dive into that, though, I wanted to talk about where perhaps your love for outdoor adventure came from like in I think in the past people who have this love this passion for outdoors generally either they're raised with it um, or they have encountered it in their adult lives so how did you get introduced to this world yeah great question I think that um, one one of the things I often tell people when I'm teaching and I'm a trainer for the org is to look back on their play histories because there is a historical origin point to play and also to the work you do so i think that the same thing applies to me in adventure i i am originally from england and you know i love the outdoors i think that there was some component of it that gave me some safety you know i as a kid uh, grew up with social anxiety so there was that that draw for for isolation a little bit in the in the outside world away from people and so I think that there was always that kind of underbelly or that underlining of me wanting to be in the outside. Uh, I also was a part of what's called the Boys Brigade, which is essentially a, a scouts in, uh, in England. But so I was at that for a while. And originally I was going to become an English teacher. I, w I had a traditional uh, teaching degree um, and I'd spend a couple of years as a teaching assistant in a high school. 
then I got the opportunity randomly to be able to come to the States. There was the offer to work at a summer camp. And I just found it would be beneficial for my education to say that I'd worked in another country with a different population. So I ended up coming to uh, New York State. I honestly thought I was going to the city. That's, a, you know, but I ended up in the state of New York, which is <laughs> a surprise for an English person who'd never been to the States before to end up outside of the city. But I ended up at a, a summer camp that had an outdoor education program and a challenge course and an adventure program. And they would do team development work. And that was when I was introduced to this being a career. I had no idea in England that this was a field. I was following the route of education and coming into the States and realizing this could be a viable thing. And I could teach people about being better people. That seemed very appealing to me than rather than teaching Shakespeare or, you know, reading, which would, would be sometimes challenging to get people interested. Instead, I was using these tools, which were these ropes courses and taking kids on backpacking trips and, but having discussions about what does it mean to be a better member of the community? How does it mean to be a better leader? And that was exciting. And, and also being outside, I felt comfortable. I found myself relaxed in this position where I thought, wow, this is something I could do. So I, I was offered a position, not because I had experience teaching in the outdoors, but because I had experience teaching. And I think that a lot of people who end up in outdoor education or the adventure industry in the States follow it because of a passion, but not necessarily follow it through a degree or an educational route. There are degrees out there that I had no idea you could take, um, but most people do it because they just love the outside. So I think that me having a teaching background was a, a great, inset, a great uh, benefit to me being able to find career in this. And so I took those skill sets and brought them into working outside. And I was there for seven years doing outdoor education, learned all about forest ecology and pond ecology and all those kind of components of bringing school kids out. But really the, the draw for me was working with people and doing team development. I just fell in love with the idea that I was actually imparting something that was going to have a massive benefit to them in the future. I was planting trees that I'd never get to see grow, but I was, there was that moment where I was given information that would, was beyond, am I teaching you math, science? I'm, I'm teaching how to be a better human being and have social skills, which, is, which was exciting for me. And that was through there that I ended up working for High Five. I found them and did training with them. Well, and this is great because you kind of came into the space by way of teaching, which I thought was amazing. And I had shared this with... Uh, on the podcast, definitely uh, the one weird, really weird experience that I had having remembered one of my uh, my grade school teachers from, gosh, twenty years ago at this point, and I haven't spoken to her, never you know heard from her once after I obviously moved on from that class. And it's really interesting the impact that people have when they're teaching somebody, right? And you just kind of forget how much of that stays with the people who you're teaching. And so I love that you kind of came into the outdoor space by way of, of teaching. And what's interesting to me is because you had mentioned that you kind of started the the journey basically in the outdoors, not only just by te teaching and everything, but also because you felt like it was safe. And in isolation, there's this idea of safety. And can we, let's unpack this for a second, because I'm interested in this uh, idea that, you know, safety is necessary, not just for each person, but also when even for the audience who is, who's listening and running a business, just the fact that you have this personal safety uh, or, or just with other people, you felt safe. Can we talk a little bit about 
how, um, you know, how do you get to that point if you are, let's say you've never done outdoors before, right? You don't have people necessarily around you who's providing that kind of safety. What are your thoughts on um, maybe creating that sense of safety for, for the audience who's listening? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's an essential uh, component of making people feel that they can take that step to improvement, especially if you're going to be doing something team development related or leadership development related. There's a huge buy-in that needs to be created. And I think that the buy-in comes from creating the space where, where people can advocate for themselves, where they do have a sense of choice, where they do have the ability to decide which where they're going to do, what they're going to do and how they're going to get there. In the work that I do, um, it's, you know, I, I'm a part of the adventure industry, but we also focus very strongly on experiential education, this component that we learn from our experiences. And a huge component of that is connection before content. I think that too often we try to shove at people, this is the, what you need to do. And we forget that connection is so, so important for that. We also define ourselves as facilitators. Now, the word facilitation essentially means to make easy. Now, if we're not making it easy for people to find comfort in those situations, then we're really going to struggle to be able to have those conversations that go deeper. When people are saying, Phil, I really want to focus on trust or communication with my organization, because we do a lot of organizational team development work, you know, the, the, the essential part has to be connection. I won't do a program unless we focus on it because I think that the, the point is to be able to have discussion if it's in a space inside or it's outside to be able to feel comfortable. And we do an activity actually called um, the challenge zones. And the concept is that it's a bullseye image with the central, central circle representing comfort. The Middle of that is our challenge zone or our stretch zone. That's where we do most of our learning. Most of our learning occurs. Outside of that, that far boundary is called the panic zone. There's no spectrum to the panic zone. The only thing that's learned is there is no way I'm going to do that again. And what's really essential when you're working with a group early on is to understand where the group is, read the group and understand what their starting point is, because there is no point taking them out into the woods, getting them into harnesses and climbing stuff, you know, climbing a tree and doing a zip line. If you haven't understood where the group is coming from at the start. So in this activity, I might say something like, uh, I'm going to give you some scenarios. I just want you to place yourself in the spectrum, wherever you feel that, you would naturally be in the scenario. So if I said, how comfortable are you swimming? You would place yourself in this spectrum of either comfortable, this is a challenge to me, which has spectrum to it, closer to comfort or further away, or panic. And then I'm able to use this example as a litmus test for me in the group to say, okay, I can see in the scenario everyone is panicked about swimming. We won't go swimming. That's a poor example, but it might be a case that we do something else. We're going to have a discussion about uh, some conflict that's gone in and on in the organization. How did comfortable would you feel sharing that information with your peers? Stand in the position that it feels natural for you. And so now we get to learn, okay, I'm probably not going to go too deep with this group because everyone would panic about sharing honestly their feelings. So that gives me an ability to craft the program. And I think the exact same thing is applicable to the outside. When we bring groups to our, our site, you know, it's, we're in the town of Brattleboro or the city of Brattleboro in Vermont. We're not necessarily going into the woods straight away. We might be start on a field and that might be the start point. We do a lot of activities that get us to the point where, okay, now we're going to go into the woods. 
So how do we feel about that? Is that comfortable for you? And we get a lot of participants that come to us that have a completely alien to the outside world. Even some that have never seen forest and greenery. We have a, a program we're associated with another organization in Brattleboro called the school for international training and the world learning center, which brings to our program uh, kids from all over the world. And they're often talking about conflict resolution and they use us as a starting point. And I, I, I remember specifically having the moment where a, a group from Iraq came, there was a Sunni Shiite mix of kids and they were coming to do conflict resolution. And we were about to take them into the woods and a kid asked me, Phil, what are those? And he was pointing at the trees. The greenery of the trees were new to him. And I asked the question, I, I made the, the assumption that people knew what forests looked like, but they had never seen greenery in the way that that was represented. And we ended up spending a whole day not focused on the goals that I had, but actually focusing on the goals that they had about learning about the world. And I was able to lean on my forest ecology background to be able to talk about pine cones and talk about tree and fauna and flora. And so I had to just adapt my whole program to fit the comfortability of the group rather than trying to impart, okay, I want them to get to X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to shoehorn them into this. It has to be about reading the group and making them feel comfortable at the start. So, and I love this concept that you start basically with the comfort level where they're at. I think that is so important. I'm so glad that you brought this up. And I like definitely that bullseye visual that you had described, comfort, challenge, and panic, right? And using that as uh, as a way for you to read, okay, where are we and where should I, I being you, Phil, um, where should I start? And I am curious though, because I think in a lot of cases, I wonder if maybe people are uncomfortable to start with sharing where where they are comfortable or uncomfortable. Do do you find that sometimes people, um, I guess, tweak the their answer to the bullseye, or is that do you feel like everybody for the most part are pretty completely honest about that? No, absolutely. That's a perfect question, and it gets brought up a lot in the trainings that they do because you're very re heavily reliant on an honest feedback loop, right? You want to see that the people are going to be honest, and a lot of people will also bend to the pressure of their peers. Let's see, I see somebody step into the comfort, and it happens to be my supervisor. Am I going to now step away from that position, or am I going to feel hard, feel challenged to do so? So, and it also occurs in a lot of kids that we work with you know, are they going to stand where their friends stand? So we get that question a lot. I think that what I can tend to do is one, I can role model vulnerability. And I think that that is crucial to any leader in any organization. And also for me as a team development person and leadership development person, I really want to role model. So in those scenarios, I will place myself in the scenario to try to create that sense that it's okay to be in a sense of panic. I might even make a joke that puts me into the sense of panic to demonstrate that it's okay to be there. However, if the, if you notice, and if I've noticed that a lot of people are jumping into comfort on every scenario I give, then what I tend to do is give them an, some anonymous, I can't think of that word, anonymity, that's the word. Um, and what I'll do in there is give them each individual sheet of paper that has the bullseye on it. And they will mark on that piece of paper where they feel and then hand them to me without names associated. And then I can look through that and make a judgment on based on the average of the group. Now, if I know that a lot of people are in panic, what I might do is tailor my now program to fit their needs. So it avoids the ability for them to out themselves in front of their group around their vulnerabilities. 
um, but it does still allow me to gauge the group and see where they're at. The other thing I will mention is I always ask the same sort of questions that are a little lighter before I get onto the harder questions. It's a poor choice to go straight into and, and try to go deep. So what I will do is I mentioned the swimming, but I have a swimming scenario and it often gets to swimming in dark water, having something rub against your feet. But I, I add each of those in sequentially so that it has this uh, light piece to it. And then I go a little deeper and focus on those. And what I will also do is ask the groups to, come up with their own scenarios that are applicable to them. Would anyone like to share a scenario and see where the group is at? Um, so I think that there, you, there, are, there are ways to change the activity to be able to meet the group, especially if they are resistant to honesty early on. But I will say that I wouldn't bring that activity in at the first piece. I would probably have spent a couple of hours focusing on the connection of the act of the group before I got into those questions. But those questions do allow me to then go deeper if I want to go deeper. Right. And I love that you had highlighted a couple of things here, being uh, role modeling vulnerability, right? And just kind of sharing with them essentially that it's okay because you're doing it too. And you're sharing this, uh, opening the door basically for them to be a lot more comfortable with admitting where they're panicked, right? And I think this is so great because what surprises me the most, I think a lot of times in different organizations is how uncomfortable people are sharing really what they're actually feeling and thinking, right? And um, what really impresses me is actually your focus on starting with that connection with the group first, right? And why do you think it's, why, why has this been kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say difficult, but why has it been kind of a, uh, I guess, an issue in a lot of organizations or even just businesses that you've seen? Why is that the case, Phil? Because I think it takes time. I think that there is, um, and I, I can't remember the exact, I think it's tame, but it could be team, but each of those letters stands for something. And it, it's what prevents an organization or a group from being able to adapt to something new that's introduced into this programming or in the, their group mindset. T is time, which is, I think, is an essential piece. The A is the accountability. Are we going to be holding ourselves accountable to what we're trying to do? The next one is money. How, how much is it going to spend for us to do this? And then the other one is energy. Is there even the energy in the group to, to do this? And, that, and that's the, where that buy-in comes in. But I think the essential thing is that it does take time. There's a lot of organizations that will contact us and say, we'd really like, we've got some issues with trust in our organization. Can you spend four hours fixing that? <laughs> and the answer is absolutely no. <laughs> and And so... We will we'll tell them, we'll be honest with it and say there is, there is, it would be very, very challenging for us to be able to try to solve that problem in four hours. We could do it over a period of four weeks or four days, but that there is going to be something that's going to require us to really focus in on the connection. It's, you know, in experiential ed, it's connection before content. At High Five Adventure, our motto is connect, empower, lead, be the example. So, connection is always the first point and we're very intentional about doing that we do it internally as well we practice what we preach in that uh, but we have the opportunity just as a group to constantly connect outside of it being a work time i think that the the thing i've been noticing especially in the zoom world is we we're we're connecting with people still but we're not actually connecting we're using these moments to have meetings there's an agenda always and how often are we actually saying let's just hang out for half an hour and talk about how we're doing over zoom and so we spend a lot of isolation. And I think that was the same way even in the workplace. I think that 
it's it was looked it was frowned upon to engage in playful activity connection based activity with your peers i remember doing a um a team development program for an organization where they all arrived in you know suits jackets they were ready for work and they weren't really ready for play and i we engaged in play for a long period of time centered around focusing on them and by the end of it there was people saying, you know, this is so wonderful. I wish we could do this every day. And I said, you can, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. You doesn't have to be that Phil's now gone. That's the excuses. Now we don't have that. Take the moment to connect. Even our, our office, when we were still open, our executive director, once again, role modeling that behavior would come by every office and just chat for the first hour, two hours. He would spend intentionally two hours of his workday connecting with the staff and that would be built into his workday. It wasn't a, oh, this is going to make it so my other six hours are crammed. It was like a component piece of it. And I think that that is an essential piece to be able to then have conflict. Because a lot of times we're having those moments where we're storing in all our conflict. Oh, someone annoyed me here and this happened there. And it blows out of proportion. If you're ever connected with people, you can get to a point of honesty where you can say, you know what you just did there really irritated me for X, Y, and Z. But if you haven't connected with them already and you don't know much about them, it's much harder to do that. It's much harder to empathize with them. It's much harder to reach out when you need help or reach out to them when you notice they need help. I think connection is the core of any successful organization. And so it's everything that we, we do is always going to be focused on connection before anything else. Right. And I absolutely love actually your emphasis on time and time then that worked into play and how play actually can raise healthy conflict in some ways and therefore healthy potential resolutions and therefore trust, right? All of these things kind of interconnected in some in magical ways that you can't just you can't just be like, hey, this is the three hours that we're gonna work on this. And I think mostly because the process is so organic, right? And it just kind of has to happen uh, in a way that it unravels itself, which is great. And I'm kind of curious though, what would be because you had mentioned that people come to you and organizations asking for you to help with certain activities and training. And when they're out side of that after they're done or maybe before they they engage with you and and engage in these programs what's the antidote to and you had kind of touched on them a little bit but more specifically as far as action steps are concerned if you are in an organization and maybe you're the employee or the employer and there's all these things going on right what are some things that as a leader or maybe as a person who can lead the specific groups underneath them and, um, and then report back to certain leaderships, how can you, uh, I guess, for, for foster and nourish these types of environment where the connection, trust, and all of these things are built in? Yeah, I think that we, most people listening to this can think of at least one time where they've had a, a director or a supervisor or a boss who said it's, my office is an open door policy, but you know that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. So because you're concerned, you've got all these concerns about I'm going to lose my job if I speak out, all of this. So I think that the, the crucial component is that the leadership, the, the people in that director position need to truly be willing to listen and truly have that vulnerability and the empathy and understanding. I, I think vulnerability is, is really, really crucial. Those people who I've worked for that have demonstrated great leadership for me have owned up mis to mistakes themselves. So that creates the opportunity for you as an employee to be able to also own up to mistakes and not feel there's repercussion. 
the, I did a program with a group um, and it was, it was so telling the, I said, I, I almost got to the point where I said, I don't know why I need to be here because it started off by there was a issue with the time management. I guess people didn't know they should have been at this place at the right time. It was a very uh, problematic start. And the director of the program just put the hand up at the very start and said, hey, I just want our own. That was my bad. I didn't communicate well. And it was just this very open experience of I made a mistake. And I just stood there and was like, wow, I don't know if I need to do much more because it's very clear to me that the leadership of this org are already demonstrating the vulnerability that is very, very important. Um, but the other thing I will say from anyone else in the organization, I think that the word leadership is misconstrued or misinterpreted so often. I think that people think that leaders are the people who are telling us what to do. And I massively disagree. I think any single person in their organization can be a leader and should be a leader in some way. And it's through the way they role model. It's about them in a group meeting, speaking out and saying that they have a worry and concern. Um, I was recently having a conversation with a child children's book author and he was, he writes books about emotions. And I was telling him that I think that his books are, should be uh, reading books that not only kids read, but adults have to read because there was a book specifically called Ruby finds a worry. And you can check out this author is called Tom Percival, fantastic illustrator author of books all about emotions. And in this, the, the, the main message is if you have a worry, you should talk about it. And I just said to him, like how many adults do not listen to this message you're putting out to kids? And I think that there's something to leaders and across the board that it should feel if there is an issue that they should feel able to speak out because it, it's an essential skill to be, then have a good communication. I think the problem with a lot of organizations that have issues is there's no communication. So, you know, we build what's called challenge courses. They're not called success courses. I've already referenced the challenge zones. They're not called our success zones. The key places, there's a challenge. We'll go into organizations and we'll ask people tough questions. And the response is like, oh, you shouldn't be asking that. No, absolutely. I'm going to ask that. If I'm with a group and there's an issue around trust, if it's kids or adults, I will say, who here is the person that maybe we don't trust? And call it out. And, and, and then I'll ask that person, what makes you feel like you're not trusted? Like, let's have a conversation. There's something to this and we need to just open it up. And sometimes that's a case where it opens up something that you wish that you'd never open the doors to, but it's an important thing. It can't stay closed. There was a, there's a video at some point going around talking about the second leader, how this, the idea of second leader is more important than the first leader. It's not the person that necessarily also speaks up, but it's the person, the second person to speak up to uh, uh, justify and advocate and support the person who initially stood up. There's a video that showed it was like a, like a festival, a dance festival. And someone had drunk a lot, I'm assuming, and was just dancing on their own. There was just, it's just a person in a field, lots of other people sitting around, but this one person dancing. And then you see another person join. And then slowly it becomes this big group dance. And the notion isn't not so much about the person who was dancing on their own. It was more about someone noticing that they or empathizing and feeling that this person needed their support and said, I'm going to step up and join them. And as soon as they did that, other people did it too. So there is a notion there that there needs to be support around an organization. And if you see someone take a uh, demonstrate vulnerability, one of the greatest things you can do is also support them in that vulnerability and not sit there going, oh God, why did they say that? 
oh, they're going to get in so much trouble. You know that? Like, no, step up too. And also say, you know what? I agree. And, and then the conversation card, or if you don't agree, but there's, there's that piece about being there for other people and advocating for others. Yeah. And this is so true. And I love that you had mentioned a couple of really great topics here in that the leadership really does need to step up, right, essentially, and really show vulnerability. And I do see this being a skill. I don't think, I think a lot of people think, oh, they're just, they just, they're a natural at it, right? They're charismatic. I don't think so. I think it's most of the time, sure, maybe there's a 1% population who are just naturally born great leaders. But I think for most people who are leading, and I don't mean like Phil is saying, and I'm talking to the audience here, I don't mean that it's just people who are directing. It's just you being you supporting other people. I think it's so important to be able to, I guess, develop these skills, right? These are real skills. And that's why I think High Five is doing such a great, uh, great work here for, for the people who they serve. And I think that example that you had mentioned of people saying, I made the mistake, you know, I made a mistake. Why is it that so, uh, I think a lot of leaders feel, I guess, are compelled to, uh, they feel like they have to understand everything and know everything and never make mistake. What do you think is the psychology behind that? I think society has bred this into us. Uh, you know, yeah. I think that there's a lot of great discussion recently about mental health as well and making that seem more on par with physical health and being able to own up to errors. You know, I've, I can speak for me as, as being English that there is this mindset of the stiff upper lip that you don't, if there's, there's no emotion, right? Like you can't, if this, you, I've never seen my dad cry as an example. Like that's a, that's a normal thing for people to have seen. And it wasn't until I first, you know, watched the supervisor get emotional that I was like, it touches you. you, you feel that. And I think that the more that that happens, the more that that occurs, the better it is for a lot of organizations and a lot of people to be able to advocate the mindset of strength. I don't necessarily see people who bottle things in as a strength. I see it more as a weakness. And I think that that's, it's stronger when people can own and say, this is how I feel and, and demonstrate that vulnerability. And that just, you know, waves that just um, ripples into the organization and it only leads into the better. Um, I, I very rarely found that, as myself going in and I'm, I will often talk about, you know, struggles that I've had. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I had social anxiety and it, it's crazy. And I think to a degree I still have it, but I think that's crazy that I work with people as a living now. And essentially I do a social job, but I think that me having that understanding of what it's like allows people to be able to relate. You know, it's all about empathy, how we relate to each other. And we are social human beings, so we want to be able to relate with each other. We find it very challenging when we meet someone who we do not get. You know, like, I don't get that person at all. So there's like a real struggle to be able to connect. And I think it sometimes comes from that feeling that they are robotic in their stance. They have to be overly strong. And you know in yourself that you're feeling a certain way. But if you don't see it in others, then you start to doubt the way you're feeling is actually right. And you will start to think the way I'm feeling is wrong. One of the, the, one of the things that we do often, whether it's with kids or adults, is that we'll ask questions and then immediately say, who else feels this way? And we'll ask people to raise their hands. And, I, and, and then I'll ask, like, keep your hands up and everyone just take a moment and look at how many hands are up. And I don't really need to go any deeper than that. I think the idea that we're seeing other people feeling a certain way suddenly makes us feel better. 
it suddenly makes us feel relaxed because we want to feel part of a community. And so when you see other people feeling a certain way that it, it, it creates that safety, what we talked about before, what makes you feel safe in an environment is that you do get to a point where you understand other people feel the same as you. And it comes in many different ways, but you know, very often I will say to a group like, okay, I can see that there seems to be some sort of stress around this scenario. Is anyone else feeling stressed? Put your hands up. Okay. Everyone's feeling this way. It's, you're not alone. So let's talk about it for a bit. You know, and I think that the idea that you're not alone is very, very important in the ability to be able to then have honest conversation about how you feel. And I love that this is actually that you touched on, I think, stress, right? Anxiety. And these are all the things that I think if in any degree, everyone is feeling this way, right? Whether it's in small bits or in, in huge amounts. But it, it's really, I think for the most part, is the feeling that you're on your own, right? And that you cannot, like if you fail on your own, there's where do you fall, right? Like where who's going to catch you? And I like kind of the idea of you uh, suggesting that, okay, well, if the way to create sa- safety is really just having an honest conversation on who else is feeling this way. It doesn't have to, we don't have to have a direct solution, but just having everyone just be like, hey, I'm feeling this way as well. Suddenly, everybody's a lot more relaxed, open, and somehow able to rise into this kind of leadership position, right? Which is really interesting, I think. So uh, you mentioned earlier, and I wanted to, I think, uh, pause and highlight this for a second. When you were talking in your conversation with Tom Percival, who wrote this amazing book, and you yourself had written uh, or co-authored a book. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, the book that you wrote. What was kind of the idea behind it and what kind of prompted you to, to co-author that book? Yeah. So in, in the adventure industry, in the experiential ed industry, there are a lot of activities that we do. And so they might be for many different reasons, connection, communication, problem solving. We, we have activities for them. And the point is to try to replicate some sort of real life scenario, but in the sense of an activity in a game. But there are a lot of books out there. And we decided we wanted to write our own book, but we didn't want it to be an activity book in the same sense where you can read it and just read it and assume that you can do it. I, I struggle myself to read books and understand exactly how something plays out. But what we wanted to touch on is that when we go to conferences, when I present at conferences or do trainings, people always want new. Give me something new. What's the newest thing? What's the latest idea? What's the? And the reality is when I'm working with many different groups, uh, I use the same stuff. And what I will do is I'll get to the point where I know activities work for me. I have a script in my brain. I know what the outcomes are. I know where I can lead it. But I also know how to change the framing to meet the needs of the group. And so this book is called Tinker. And the concept behind it is taking classic adventure activities and putting a twist on them, changing the framing, changing the reflections, um, and making those activities fit any, any group that you work with. So you can become, rather than a jack of all trades, you can become a master of some and become actually really good at 10 activities and use them for any group you work with. And I think that notion is really important for you know, anyone focusing on what can we do with my team and what can I do to enhance my team, business or un, non-business teams, is that you know, 
I think people wanting new stuff all the time. And I think that that's where as well, I think sometimes the fatigue comes from with doing this. You know, we're going to do a team development thing. We're going to do a team building activity. And notice I've been using the word team development. And that's intentional because team building, I think, has this negative connotation of holding hands in kumbaya circles and all that kind of stuff. So development makes it lean a little bit more serious. But in reality, we're doing the same things, but we're just changing some of the word, the terminology. But I think that that's an important thing to distinguish that there is, you can, you can get really good at stuff and just change it. And how often, and I mentioned experiential education is what we focus on. How often do you ever do something once? So the idea that we only do one activity and I'm going to do this, let's say we're doing a problem solving initiative and the aim is to get something done. We've got this challenge and you're going to try to solve this problem. Well, let's say they do it once. If I never ever do that again, how am I learning about that? <laughs> like how the point is repetition is going to improve me. The point is do it over and over again. And maybe I'll do it and change something and tweak something to break their assumptions or just change some of the, the framing. But I'll do an activity several times of a group so they get practiced and know how to use do it. And so then we can really have discussion about how they can relate that into the work they do in their day-to-day job. Um, but yeah, that's the, benef- that's the main aim of the activity book or the book Tinker is to talk about how we can change the framing to meet the need of any group. And I love this kind of idea of reframing, right? And basically being able to have this discipline or mental discipline to do something that you're good at and become becoming masters at it and yet recreating new ways to look at it and to invite people into new ways, framework and all of these uh, channels that they can still do the same things, but in new ways and new land. And I think this is so true, even if in the fitness space, right? Or in definitely in business, if someone is feeling tired or fatigued doing something, take a different route, do something in a different order or whatever, right? And reposition certain things. I, I love this, uh, this concept because I think it is so important to be aware of it, right? And I think not a lot of people are very aware of it. They're just kind of like, oh, I'm just tired of that. Well, maybe so, but you're not tired of this new way to do that, right? Of doing that, which is so interesting. So uh, I wanted to touch for a second here on a little bit more, and we've touched on High Five, of, of course, your organization that helps uh, individuals, teams, schools, communities uh, improve their way of life, right? Learn and develop uh, strong and t- trusting teams. Can you share a little bit more about High Five and perhaps where they can, where people and the audience can learn about that a little bit more and then we'll wrap up the interview yeah absolutely so uh high five is a um a non-profit educational organization based out of brattleboro vermont and we work with kids all the way through adults we also work with uh some professional sports teams and the aim is always about making better human beings essentially it seems like a very simplistic idea but the idea is using our experiential models and our adventure models and the way that we use stuff as a tool to be able to improve the communities and the teams that we work with and our website is high five adventure and that's the number five so h-i-g-h the number five adventure.org and you can find all our information on there and also as you are listening to a podcast we do have our very own called vertical playpen Amazing. Phil, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget to hit follow and subscribe. Grow Solvers, let's dive in.